Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbang and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our Body Positive Parenting Primer, which is available for purchase on our website. The Primer is a virtual 90-minute seminar that you can watch or listen to just like a podcast. You'll learn the five fundamentals to truly transform your home environment and set your kids up for body positivity fast. Get the Primer at fullbloomproject.com course. That's fullbloomproject.com course. In episode 32, we spoke with Marcy Evans, a registered dietitian and food and body image healer. She has spoken nationally and internationally on these topics and has an online training platform for dietitians and therapists on the topics of body image, nutrition counseling for eating disorders, and the intersection of disordered eating and digestive health. Additionally, she maintains a group clinical practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We spoke with Marcy about how digestive challenges and the concept of gut health can get complicated by diet culture and maybe more specifically wellness culture. She talked us through how parents can help kids struggling with tummy aches and food sensitivities, and we discussed the mind-body connection, the risk of elimination diets, and her recommendations for supporting your child and working with their providers from a body-positive perspective. Marcy, welcome to the Full Bloom Podcast. Thank you both so much for inviting me to talk with you. I'm thrilled to be here. We're thrilled to have you, but let's introduce you to our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what brought you to your work on food and body image healing? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Marcy, and I am a registered dietitian by training. And I've been, let's see, how long have I been a dietitian? Gosh, about 15 years. And I have spent the vast majority of my career working in the field of eating disorders. I was really fortunate. So to become a dietitian, after you finish your bachelor's degree, you have to go on to do a dietetic internship. And I was one of the very few dietetic interns who happened to have a rotation at an eating disorders residential treatment center. And I fell in love with the work immediately. And that was when I was first exposed to the book intuitive eating, which also really impacted the kind of trajectory and focus of my career and kind of never looked back. So I've kind of dabbled in a couple of different positions, but you know, for the, for the shorter version of the story, I started out, um, in eating disorders during my internship, had an opportunity to further my studies in graduate school and worked at a treatment facility and then opened a private practice um, about 10 years ago. So that's kind of the short story, but I absolutely love the work that I do. And it's for me incredibly fulfilling to 
you know, focus my work as a dietitian more on helping people get excited and, and to reconnect with food and to feel permission and pleasure rather than kind of the traditional dietetics, which is a little bit more focused on um, at least people typically think about, you know, portion control and what you shouldn't be eating for health. And I find that eating disorders is this field rich for focusing on food as a wonderfully positive and nurturing thing. Yeah. And we're doing two thumbs up for for the work you do. And, you know, last season on our podcast, we focused a little bit on orthorexia, which I know I'm sure we could have a wonderful conversation with you about as well. But I think we want to get a little bit more nuanced today. But I bring that up because I'm thinking about how gut health is something that like I think you see it all the time, like when you sign on, like on Google, you know, just like your your web browser, something about gut health comes up. And I think that as we talk a lot about this sort of this conflation uh, between sort of weight and health and there's there's just like we're, this diet culture that we're living in is complicated and the wellness diet and et cetera. And I think we've spent other episodes sort of talking in more broad brushstrokes about those things, those basic tenets. But I bring this up because today we really want to focus in particular on digestive challenges, which we know is one of your subspecialties, and how they can impact young people's ability to fully bloom. And so we would love for you to just tell us a little bit about what you've seen, both in your own practice and in the research, about the prevalence of digestive disorders and food allergies and tolerances and how they impact people suffering from them. Oh, I'm so I'm so eager to be having this conversation. So I'll back up a little bit and first talk about my clinical experience and then um, how that led me to go down the rabbit hole of what the research has to show. Um, so as a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders, my practice um, is a little bit unique than as compared to many dietitians because my work has been pretty much 100% eating disorders focused. And what I was finding is that one of the things that was getting in the way of individuals' kind of full recovery as well as their challenges around body image was difficulty that they were having around digestion. And a lot of times there is a narrative at higher levels of care, so residential level of treatment or partial level of care, is that digestive challenges are, are kind of par for the course. And the expectation being as a person gets renourished and they're eating more appropriate levels of food, this expectation that these GI problems are going to resolve themselves. And the reality is, as an outpatient provider, that was not my experience. I was finding while not every patient had trouble digestively, the vast majority of them did, of course, along the spectrum of severity. But I found it to be so incredibly common and really, really difficult to treat. And so that led me down a, a rabbit hole of looking at the research, as I mentioned, and also connecting with a couple of colleagues of mine who were really digestive health experts. And I teamed up on a number of talks as well as an online training. I ended up co-developing with a just dear colleague of mine. Her name is Lauren Deer. And <laughs> she, she taught me so much. But what I learned from her mentorship as well as with the research is that when you look at individuals with eating disorders and the research that has looked at the prevalence of people with eating disorders who also struggle with some sort of digestive complaint, 
is that it is well over 90% and some of the research even showing co-occurring challenges as high as 98%. So what this suggests is that this is more the norm than otherwise for our individuals with eating disorders. And so this kind of begs the question about, you know, the chicken and the egg. Is it the eating disorder that's causing the GI complaints? Is it the GI complaints causing the disordered eating? But then what makes it even more complicated that you kind of hinted at, which is we live in a culture and this wellness culture, diet culture, which is fairly obsessed with gut health and fairly obsessed with what's happening in our digestive systems. Are we bloated, getting a flat belly and sort of on and on and on. So we have this culture surrounding us, which kind of encouraged us to have, I think, too large of a preoccupation around our digestive health and can kind of pathologize things that are completely normal, which then sets us up to have concerns about food because often what's presented in the culture is if you have a problem with your digestion, you need to be eliminating foods. And oh boy, is that a potential recipe for disaster and talk about an open door for folks who are vulnerable to the development of an eating disorder. So we get this really complicated picture. I think of it almost like a Venn diagram where we have digestive concerns, we have eating disorders, we have diet culture, and all of these things coming together to make a very, very confusing situation. So when I talk about this, I want to make sure This is no blame game, no judgment. So if any of your listeners think, oh my gosh, I've done that, or oh my gosh, I've, you know, I've suggested this to my child, you know, we don't want any guilt or shame here. All of us are susceptible to the messages from the culture that we live in. And hopefully some information you get today will will help you to feel a little bit more confident moving forward. Yes, we we definitely want to underline that. Um, So let's move forward. Let's start with just talking about the difference between digestive disorders, food allergies, and food intolerances in a way that, you know, busy parents can can hear. And quickly digest. And quickly digest. That's a good one today, right? (laughs) But I'm bumch. (laughs) I've just amused myself a little too much. But kind of can't help it. Yeah. This is a really great question for us to begin our conversation because we throw these terms around and sometimes they're used interchangeable, but they really aren't necessarily interchangeable. So I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but digestive disorders, you can think as an umbrella term for any disorder that affects the gastrointestinal system. This could be reflux, this could be constipation, this could be celiac disease, this could be Crohn's disease. So that's the big umbrella term, okay? Food allergies are are really something very specific in which your body is responding to something that you're eating and it's mounting an immune mediated response. So what that means is it turns on your immune system and your immune system is saying, whoa, we've got a problem here. And when your immune system reacts, it can show up in different body systems. Sometimes you might have a GI response, but often very common, you're having a response on your skin, like a rash or hives or maybe swelling, and often also get a response from your respiratory system. So maybe wheezing or sneezing. 
or something more severe. Like if you think of a peanut allergy and somebody, you know, needs an EpiPen or, you know, has to be taken to the emergency room. So that's really where the food allergies fall. So you want to think of those as immune responses. And then a food intolerance is, is really, again, kind of a, a general term. And there are some ways to test for food intolerances and other ways that you actually can't test for food intolerances where your GI system is letting you know, oof, I'm not so happy with this food, but it's not an allergy and it's not something you have to stay away from for medical safety, but it could be a preference. So if somebody was to notice, oh my gosh, every time I eat dairy, this is a really common one, right? Lactose intolerance. Um, it's really an intolerance to the lactose in the dairy, not the whole dairy itself. Again, don't want to get too much into the weeds here is that you might notice, oh my gosh, every time I have dairy, I become bloated. I have stomach pain and then I'm running to the restroom. And so that's what an intolerance is. Are there any other kind of definitions on the outset that might be helpful for me to, to speak to? Not that we've identified, but do you feel that there's something that parents are often asking about? Well, what I think the biggest conundrum for parents that I see is, and this isn't, this is probably globally true for not just parents, but any individual struggling with a, a digestive issue or a child struggling with a digestive issue is that we can have so many different symptoms but those symptoms could be tied to many different causes. And that's where it gets very, very, very confusing. So we could be looking at bloating. We could be looking at burping. We could be looking at reflux. We could be looking at just a tummy ache. We could be looking at constipation, right? So we have this spectrum of symptoms, but it's very, very difficult because those symptoms are so general. We don't know, okay, every time somebody is constipated, we know that it's celiac disease. It could be so many different things that are the root cause. So I think that's really the biggest dilemma is trying to take those symptoms and help manage the symptoms because the symptoms can be so uncomfortable and so distressing and really get in the way of recovery work. Um, but really trying to identify where might the culprit be coming from without causing more harm than good. And where we get into trouble is that the general conversation around if you're having digestive problems, it's, uh-oh, you need to remove a food or you need to remove a lot of foods in order to get to the root of the problem. Yeah, And that is really at odds with what we're trying to do with eating disorders recovery. And prevention as well. But before we get into that, I did think of one word, and I, it may be interchangeable for intolerance, but what about sensitivities? Because you hear a lot about that, like food sensitivities. Is that the same as intolerances? or For the sake of our conversation, we can think of those as being very, very similar. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into this complexity. One of the things that I would really love to just set the stage for is I think that a lot of parents that are listening would be would fit more along the lines of a parent with a child who might be starting to show complaining a little bit of tummy aches or their stomach hurting versus a child who has an eating disorder who's in recovery. So um, I just want us to kind of shift and, and make sure that we're talking to those parents, the parents that have kids who are starting to 
they're having digestive challenges versus someone who's in recover trying to get into mm-hmm. recovery. And we want to really talk from a more prevention standpoint of how parents can navigate digestive challenges and and prevent as much as possible a relationship into disordered eating or or body image. Great. I will keep that in mind and I love the the focus of that conversation. That sounds wonderful. So go for it, Marcy. Yeah, so let's let's talk to them for a minute. What should parents know about the relationship between digestive challenges and possible struggles into disordered eating and body image? Which might be brewing. Yeah, so one of the things that literally, this is not just, you know, for drama's sake, but literally caused my jaw to drop when I was doing research on this topic and was actually preparing for a presentation is that I stumbled upon an article that was looking at and summarizing the most common risk factors for the development of an eating disorder. And of all of the things that could have been listed, one of the top risk factors for the future development of an eating disorder was early childhood eating and GI complaints. We can't necessarily pin down exactly why that is, but we have some hypotheses as to why that is. One of the areas that I find is perhaps the most important for us to talk about today is this crossover between individuals who maybe develop an eating disorder or at risk of developing an eating disorder. And this, remember the statistics I was mentioning at the beginning about the folks who, this high prevalence of people who also have GI complaints. Well, what we know in that subset of people where we have that crossover, so they're at risk of developing an eating disorder and tend to be the same people who also have these GI complaints, is that the common theme that brings those two pieces together are actually risk for anxiety and depression and personality traits where maybe there's perfectionism, maybe there's a a tendency or leaning towards nervousness or anxiousness. So these are the kids who are often high achievers, but big worriers. And it's no wonder that those are the kids who want to do everything right, right? They want to make the best grades. They want to maybe not cause too much trouble within their family systems. And these are the kids who really run the risk of feeling these emotions in their bodies, feeling these emotions in their tummies, where their worries and their anxieties can show up as stomach aches. Now, that is not to say that there are not true diagnosable food allergies, true diagnosable intolerances. That is, of course, sometimes the case. However, we see that this sort of kind of tummy ache or stomach ache complaint can also be connected not necessarily to something that is wrong with food or wrong with their digestion, aside from the fact that it is connected through this gut brain access, which we can talk about, which is the connection to our emotional world, to what's happening in our stomachs and what's happening in our guts. So that's where I see this really wonderful, often these kids are, oh my gosh, just so fantastic. 
And these are the kids that, ooh, they are really at risk for the development of an eating disorder. But some of these symptoms to show up as difficulty and discomfort and feeling nervous and um, pain in their bellies. And I'm just I'm just thinking like as a parent myself and for any parent, when your kid is in discomfort, you want to fix it. You know, I mean, it's just a biological urge to get them relief no matter what it is. And so I'm appreciating, especially if then I take my kid to a doctor or or a well-meaning, you know, dietitian who wants to sort of start with, I don't know, something like elimination, which is where I sort of sense you're headed. Um, as a parent who just wants your my child to feel relief, I get why you would sort of do anything that you're being told to do. So I'm, I'm going to kind of let you keep going. But I just wanted to like shout out to anyone that's like, oh, my gosh, I've had a kid who is in, you know, doubled over with tummy aches. And, you know, I did what the doctor said to do or I did what the, you know, well-meaning dietitian said to do. And and now I'm noticing that I'm I'm kind of in this gray area that you're talking about. So just I just have compassion. Yeah. And maybe to maybe if you could kind of respond to that with so where where do you recommend if that's where a parent is starting from I have a child who is you know starting to spend a lot of time in the bathroom and complain of tummy aches where 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 do you start yeah I know it's a really good question and I really appreciate just the pause point also just acknowledging this um, innate desire we have to immediately remove our children's, you know, suffering. You know, I, I have um, a nearly eight-month-old mm. son, and we were um, transitioning, and well, we were traveling, and we were transitioning to incorporating a formula, and we ended up having to buy a different formula at the store, and he wasn't acting like himself, and it was immediately this panic of, oh, you know, is this hurting his stomach? Is he constipated? Maybe he's having gas pain. Do we need to get another formula? When was the last time he pooped? You know, it, it is almost like a sense of panic when we mm-hmm. see you know, our children suffering and, our, you know, parents are so well-intended and you think, oh my gosh, you know, what are my options here? Now, and, and you also make a great point um, that sometimes we get advice from doctors or from other professionals to start removing food from from the diet. And so it can be a little tricky to say, you know, work, work with your providers, but I will make a general caveat to say it's great to work with providers and I can give some language around how to go about it to not necessarily go straight to eliminating foods because um, it gets to be a, a bit of a catch. Um, and, but it can be very, very helpful because working with GI symptoms can be so tricky. So if you are able to access the help of a provider, I would give the tip to say, See if you can find someone, even if your child doesn't have an eating disorder, an eating disorder specialist, mm-hmm. because we tend to go along the lines of what are all of our options, um, including looking at food, but not just an approach that says we're just going to focus eliminating food. And that's really the point that I want to make. I'm not saying you don't ever adjust the diet, but what can happen is this narrow focus where we're only looking at adjusting the diet. And we want to look at lots of different options. Yeah. And that kind of, I guess I want to ask you, because I do think that that tends to be the first place that people go. And I'm wondering if you can kind of teach a little bit to what a kind of the possible pitfalls that a well-meaning parent or parents 
would want to be mindful of when navigating a child's food sensitivities or digestive challenges? You know, how do they walk this line and be mindful? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one tip, and again, I'll just throw out, you know, a series of, of ideas you know, realizing that some of these will be accessible and some of them won't be accessible for each individual. Um, but hopefully we'll just get some ideas going and some almost kind of guardrails to try to keep things on, on the tracks. Um, I would stay uh, really clear of any provider who is suggesting a, a really kind of full-scale, massive elimination diet for your child. It is very rare in which um, anyone has to follow a full-blown elimination diet, and I would say even less so for a child. And again, I'm not speaking in absolute saying it's never, but I would say very rarely is it needed to help a child find some relief to their symptoms. And Marcy, just while we're on that, because I know sometimes they'll be called elimination diets. I know that sometimes they'll be called like the FODMAP diet, I know is one. Are there other sort of little acronyms or names that you could sort of say it might be on the lookout to hear this or this or would elimination and FODMAP sort of be enough to kind of, you know, wise and apparent? Of, you know, FODMAP is so interesting because it's it's gotten to be um, really popular, which is really, really interesting. And it can be effective in, in treating certain conditions, but it's also been co-opted by, of course, diet culture and as being sort of advertised all over the place. It's really, really kind of fascinating. Um, so the FODMAP diet is a good one to know about. I cannot think of a time in which in my outpatient practice, I would be recommending the FODMAP diet for a child. So that's a good one to know about. Another diet that someone might get the name of is a specific carbohydrate diet, which is also a very extreme, in my opinion, elimination diet that I would not be um, using with uh, an adolescent or a child. Um, and I think, you know, another way to go about it is if someone is consulting with a provider, they can just ask their provider because they don't have to be an expert just say, you know, would you consider this an elimination diet and what foods would you be eliminating? Um, and if there's a long list of major food groups and lots of foods um, being advocated to be eliminated, I would, I would not go that route. I would say, you know, there's lots of other things that we can explore here before eliminating lots and lots of foods. You know, another thing to be on the lookout for is that there is blood testing that some providers recommend where they're looking at an immune response. It's called an IgG mediated immune response. And the problem with this testing is that there's no evidence base for it. So what providers sometimes do is they'll draw blood and then they get this printout and it shows levels of a supposed reactivity to those foods. But the problem is that the testing itself is incredibly prob problematic and really there's no research behind it to, to show any sort of evidence that it is effective or accurate. So I would steer way, way clear of those kinds of testings because typically what happens is people are given a lengthy printout again of foods to eliminate. And one of the things that I'll just sort of footnote here and, and why I I really spend a lot of time on this part of being so wary of, of big elimination diets is that when we are eliminating lots of foods from our diet, what it does is that it has an impact 
on the healthy bacteria that is in our digestive systems. And one of the things that we know in research is that people who do go on to develop an eating disorder is that, and this, this is kind of newer research, is that their gut microbiome has been deeply affected and it's essentially been starved. And the consequences of this is that they have much, much higher rates and more severe GI problems down the road. So if early on you start taking a bunch of foods out, that causes, can set up to cause kind of a chain reaction um, if a person were to go on to develop a restrictive-based eating disorder. So again, that's kind of newer research, but where I'm always thinking long run, kind of where are we headed here and, and why a restrictive type approach can be problematic. Another reason is, is we're talking about kids who are maybe vulnerable and we're trying to really prevent the development of disordered eating or an eating disorder, is that unintentionally restriction can be through a well-intended kind of restricted diet can actually be the open door for the development of a restrictive type eating disorder. So if we're dealing with children who are maybe temperamentally or emotionally more kind of vulnerable to the development of an eating disorder, and then we add on GI problems, and then we go on eliminating foods, oh boy, oh boy, especially because we're not attending to the underlying temperament and emotional needs of the child, um, then we've kind of ignored a major piece of what they need, kind of pointed to food as the culprit, and then we run the risk of the child not getting their needs met and then being set up for an eating disorder. So all of this happens with the best of intentions, but can be a bit of a perfect storm. Yeah, I I think it's a nice point to just remind everyone of this is the intersection with genetics, right? Because when we had we had Cindy Bulick on last season talking to us about genetics and those genetic risk factors and just thinking about how if someone has a family history, you're talking about like kind of temperament, character traits, but if there is a genetic risk factor for an eating disorder and then the elimination diet puts the child, let's say, into energy imbalance, talk about an open door. I mean, now there's this r- increased risk for something like an eating disorder. And right, you never even got to the core, even the question you were trying to solve, which food is upsetting the tummy? Like, you don't even get a chance to get there because now you're in eating disorder treatment right, somewhere. Right, right. If you could briefly speak to how do you get someone out of that? You know, this is kind of on the other side. They've opened the door accidentally. Energy deficit came in. The the gut was impacted through the restrictive diet. And now we're on the other side trying to, trying to heal. And how do we do that? How do you do that with someone who's coming back in saying, I still have digestive issues and I'm trying to weight restore or I am weight restored or I have been weight restored for years, but I just, I'm just constantly uncomfortable. Yeah, there's, I'll I'll try to be as succinct as I can because there's, there's lots of ways in which I would approach it. So I'll, I'll kind of run through the checklist and, and you guys can interrupt me at any time. So as someone says, oh my gosh, and this is actually not at all uncommon, Marcy, I was an anxious kid digestive issues ran in my family. I remember for my whole life having problems as a, as a child, having problems with my tummy. 
Um, and then I started restricting foods in an attempt to help my tummy to feel better. And then I developed an eating disorder. And now here I am, I'm trying to recover from an eating disorder and my, my stomach kills all the time. So one of the things that I'm a big advocate for is trying to get some GI testing if possible and ruling out some basics. Have we been tested for celiac disease? Can we do a test and look at things like lactose intolerance? Can we do a test and look at perhaps what's called fructose intolerance with a type of sugar? These are fairly reliable and reasonably accessible tests that allow us to rule out certain things and allow us to say, okay, we can at least move some things hopefully off the list of concerns that we might be having. So that's one of the things that as a clinician, I like to partner with primary care doctors and GI doctors to say, hey, can I get some more information to rule out certain things? And this is, we I don't want to get um, you know too detailed here, but there are certainly a number of tests that give more information to the clinical picture where I can say, okay, it's likely not this, it's probably not that. Um, and then the other thing that I like to do, believe it or not, is going to feel so basic. But one of the things that I think is really, really important for, well, most people, but especially people recovering from an eating disorder and have digestive issues is to get on a rhythm of eating that is very consistent. So your body is used to getting fuel every three-ish to four-ish hours. And so often when people have really, you know, trouble in their system and have for many years, the eating becomes pretty chaotic. And this can be, again, well-intended. It hurts to eat. So then I go a long period of time and then I eat and then I try this and then I tried this. They're kind of all over the map. Our digestive systems, especially if you have a sensitive one and I have my hand raised, our digestive system loves routine and rhythm. That's why things get thrown off when we hop on a plane and go travel somewhere and it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I'm so constipated. Well, our systems love a rhythm. So want to work with our neurobiology to eat in a rhythmic way. Our digestive systems also love balance. So we are taught by diet culture to fear a lot of different foods. And so actually getting a balanced plate back on the menu goes a really long way. Then I also like to do in tandem with just kind of balancing out the eating and getting some testing done as looking at patterns of, of what are often kind of called disordered eating patterns, but they're also really encouraged by diet culture where we're eating a lot of diet free stuff. A lot of diet-free stuff like diet soda, fake sugars, foods that have a lot of fiber added to them, kind of those calorie-free fake foods, diet foods actually have a lot of things added to them that cause a lot of trouble to our GI system. So I like to say we're going to take those out. We're also going to maybe take a pause from a lot of the bobbly water or sodas, that kind of seltzer can cause problems. And things like chewing lots of gum that can also introduce a lot of air into the system and also those artificial sweeteners, which can also cause problems. So I start looking at what are some of these behaviors that maybe collude with the eating disorder, but also create problems from a digestive standpoint. And just one question. I know we're kind of bopping back and forth between like after the problem has brewed and also kind of before hopefully any problem brews. Is that a similar protocol that you might take with a with a young person? Like rather than do an elimination diet, you might do yes. those steps. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. This to me is you, you, I would use this with anyone, 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next piece that I would want to be incorporating, and this is where, oh my gosh, the power of parents come in because parents know their child better than anybody else is I want to get to know what's this, what's this kid like? What's their personality like? What's their temperament like? And how do we develop methods and tools for managing stress? The connection, I cannot emphasize this enough. The connection between our mind and our gut is so powerful. There is this big nerve that runs between our head brain and our gut brain called the vagus nerve. And an incredible amount of information goes, kind of communicates via this nerve. And what we're learning is that our emotions are very, very important important predictors in terms of what's happening in our GI system. So if we're trying to help our own GI systems or our child's GI systems without addressing our mental and emotional well-being, we're probably not going to be very successful. So this means maybe working with a counselor. It might mean learning deep breathing. It might be doing a nightly meditation together, and there are tons of free resources. It might be playing together. It might be more laughing together, but really teaching your children some skills to manage the stress or the anxiety that they might be feeling and not even know how to articulate. So again, those are tools that I would teach across the board, but managing the anxiousness, the worry, the stress, the anxiety through other tools is going to be essential to working with gut health. Um, And then the other thing as a dietitian that I do is that I do look at food trends. So if I'm noticing, wow, someone for breakfast is eating, I mean, I'll be maybe a little dramatic, you know, two apples and a bowl of oatmeal, yeah, I could imagine that's hurting their tummy. So I'm kind of looking for these flags of, you know, where might there be problems in terms of the pattern or the way that the food is prepared, maybe trying more cooked foods rather than raw foods, because cooked foods tend to be a a little bit easier for our bodies to manage. So you can make little tweaks and we can be detectives to notice, oh my goodness, Every time that my child eats this, that's when they're complaining, or it's at the same time of day, or maybe they're complaining when, um, you know, it's the night before a test. You want to start taking those symptoms and see if we can tie them to common patterns and routines and see if maybe we can shift those things. And often we can do a really great job pulling all of these tools together and doing some testing if need be. And we can make some real headway without having to go that down that route of taking, you know, large amounts of food out of the diet to to try to identify the food trigger. So our million dollar question, if each parent listening to this podcast today took away and did one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? Oh, my goodness. I'm going to try my very hardest to be succinct. (laughs) The one thing that I would say is to try to think about digestive complaints, not as a food elimination issue, but a whole person question mark where we're going to look at, you know, turning the rock over on lots of different things and really try to approach it from a whole person approach rather than just pointing our finger at food and, and calling it the problem. I think it's a great answer. And I, I truly think, Marcy, that you, you gave parents like a life hack because you don't have to have an eating disorder to benefit from seeing a dietitian with an eating disorder specialty. I, I don't think I would have thought about that, but it's a little bit of a hack. You know, it's like 
hopefully those dietitians are also marketing themselves as digestive specialists as well. But it's really true because in a way, I think you're giving us this helpful advice that if you want to be thinking about prevention at all times for your child's providers, you might make sure that they see a specialist not because they have a problem, but because the specialist might be able to help prevent the problem. Thank you, because I think that was helpful to hear. And this was great. This was very succinct, I think, for a busy parent who might want to know more. So we will definitely link to your website. And I know you've got trainings that you offer. And we'll try to put on our website some of those kind of words to look out for, like FODMAP and specific carbohydrate. Just kind of little buzzwords that we want parents to be on the lookout for and um yeah, thank you so much. This was this was a treat. Yes, thank you so much. Um, well, thank you much. so much for having me. And I'll just make a, a quick little a little aside that I do have some free resources on my site. And so if people do go to my website, which is just marcyrd.com, and you um, hover over, actually right now it takes you to the same place, whether it's client or clinician, and you click on resources – I have some free meditations in there. Obviously, as a parent, you'd want to listen to them first to see if it feels you know, appropriate for your child or if you feel like it might connect or work for your child, depending on their age. You could give it a listen, but they are, you know, they are there for free. So that's one idea. But I can also provide you, um, Leslie and Zoe, with a couple of links of some, some free resources um, because I want this to be as accessible for parents as possible. And I'm going to give one more hack. And that is for parents when they're working with providers to ask their providers, what are all of the recommendations that you would make that don't involve cutting out foods? Because there are so many tools in the toolbox and it's not just, obviously I've said this, you know, a hundred times on this podcast interview already, it's not just cutting out the food. So that's a question that they can ask as a shorthand. Great. Well, thank you so much. And we hopefully will have you on again to talk more, but for now, We will sign off and um, wait for more. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. Or you can consider becoming a patron of the podcast and visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can continue to produce and deliver this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.